Welcome to Tech Chairs, a new podcast all about sport and technology. Because technology is the single biggest force shaping modern sport. But how did we get to this point? So in this first series, we'll try to answer that with the help of innovators and experts from all over the sports that we love so much. So whether you're a fan, work in the industry or are simply tech curious, this is the series for you. Tech Chairs is a podcast talking about how technology has changed sport forever. With me, John Inverdale. And me, Rebecca Hopkins. And this edition really is talking technology because we're heading into the world of Formula One. Just have a look at the kind of car that Sir Jackie Stewart won his World Drivers' Championships in, then swipe across to that of Max Verstappen. It's like going from a Lada to a Lamborghini. Today, we are delighted to say that we're joined by Simon Taylor, renowned commentator and journalist of five decades standing, who can actually say that sitting in his driveway is the racing car of legend Sterling Moss. Simon, great to have you with us. Let's go back before we go forward, because there's always a natural progression in engineering, you know, starting off with Henry Ford. But it does seem as though racing cars began a sort of transformational identity shift 20, 30 or so years ago. So talk about the car that's at your house and compare it, if you possibly can do, to what people were watching last weekend in the Grand Prix. Right. Well, the list of differences is enormously long, but the differences are not so much simply to do with the machine. They all have four wheels. They all have an engine. Fundamentally, the structure is the same that Carl Benz came up with in 18... 92 when he came up with his four-wheeled dog cart. Obviously, the technology has moved on enormously in exactly the same way that it has in almost everything else that is to do with machinery and electronics and so on. But what's really happened in motorsport is that the change in technology has involved also the changes in the human beings that are involved. When Sterling Moss was racing the car that I'm now lucky enough to to own, if you won the race, it was really down to you and nobody else. I mean, the cars differed quite a lot, but to an extent, you won the race because you were the person that coped best, not only with the conditions and the circuit and so on, but with the shortcomings of your car. Today, and what we were watching at the most recent Grand Prix, The driver is one small cog in an enormously complex box of cogs because the first and most important thing in winning a Grand Prix today is that you have to be in the right car. And winning the race is no longer just about the skill and talent and intelligence of the driver. It really starts with the talents of the designer. And what that means is that if you were to put the world's best driver in a car that was midfield, was in perhaps the sort of car that the team is running about third or fourth or maybe fifth uh, regularly on the grid, you will not win the race. The race is only going to be won now by a driver who is driving for one of the top three teams. And that has nothing, very little to do with his actual talent. It's much more about the machinery and the technology now than it ever was 
50, 60, 70 years ago. And in the same way, the driver is part of a team which is not only 40 or 50 people from that team working at the racetrack, but there will also be maybe 200 working at home in the factory who are in constant contact not only with the team at the race, but they are plugged into the car itself. They will probably know if one of the tyres is beginning to go flat before the driver will. With that level of technology running through every fibre of the sport, at what point did that become the DNA of Formula One? Or can you point to a single time in the sport's history where you thought, yeah, we have made, we've crossed the Rubicon, we've made that shift, and probably there's no going back? Well, that's hard to pin down because Formula One has been following this path. And incidentally, we're talking about Formula One. And I always have to point out that everybody is obsessed with Formula One because it's constantly on the television. But in fact, Formula One is only one small part of a wonderful technological sport which covers the whole of motor racing. It covers different expenditures, different levels of speed, all sorts of different things, different types of racing. In many ways, Formula One is not as technologically as interesting as endurance racing, races like the Le Mans 24 Hours. But it has been a constant change. What one might say is that the Rubicon, to use your analogy, was perhaps crossed when aerodynamics became a much bigger element of designing an effective racing car. And this was really Colin Chapman of Lotus who first worked out that as well as having the best engine, in order to get round corners, you had to have a chassis that would have the best way of sticking to the road without sliding off. And he realised that you could do that by using the air that the car was travelling through. And so we had what was initially called ground effects. You started to get big wings on the cars. You started to use the air passing over the car and under the car to suck it down. And that really changed things a lot because, in a way, it reduced the driver's role, the driver's ability to be, if you like, a sort of a man who will deal with any unexpected happenings the car is going to be much more in control. The driver, of course, controls. But that was really beginning the beginning of the period when Bernie Eccleston, the former boss of Formula One, who was a man given to pretty good one-liners, he said, racing drivers, who cares about the driver? He's just the light bulb that you screw into the cockpit to make the light come on. Wow. That's a great line. Yeah. So on that basis then, Simon, you know, in an argument about the greatest boxer of all, of all time, you know, you could talk about Marciano and Ali and Tyson and fundamentally you could you could debate their merits because they were all basically doing the same thing. You know, there's a guy next door to them in the ring and they've got to punch them. But how could you ever compare Fangio with Graham Hill with the, the current crop when basically their job descriptions are so different? 
Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think you can't compare them. One of the things that aggravates me, because I've loved motor racing since the pram, and that goes back to the late 1940s, and I've watched all the great names, like, as you mentioned, Fangio and Sterling Moss, obviously, Jim Clark, Graham Hill. People try to make these comparisons and say, Lewis Hamilton is the greatest driver because he's won this huge number of Grand Prix, or Michael Schumacher or whoever it might be. And unlike boxing, where I don't know, perhaps the technology of the gloves has changed, but you're actually talking about the same sort of human battle. It's completely different in motor racing. And if you loved motor racing in the 1960s or 1970s, there's no telling whether you're going to love motor racing in the 2000s and and onwards. You might say, well, you love tennis and you also love squash, but they're different sports. And I'm afraid that's really what's happened in motor racing. And the thing that fascinates me about modern Formula One, I still think modern Formula One is a fascinating sport, but it's fascinating for quite different reasons. And I don't see Formula One throwing up these magical, unforgettable characters that it did in those days. What it's throwing up is incredibly ingenious and clever and adventurous bits of technology. Simon, to your earlier point about the various forms of motorsport that there are, are any of the other forms, NASCAR, Le Mans, whatever, are any of them doing anything where you look and you say, that is something I tip my technology cap to? That's really impressive. I wish we could embrace that. Well, yes. I, I think, I mean, one of the things that motor racing has got to do in modern times is become more ecologically acceptable. And the trouble is that. Formula One is seen not only as a way of rushing around a track for three days and burning up a lot of fuel, but it's also shipping stuff in aeroplanes and an awful lot of people all around the world. So ecologically, motor racing and Formula One in particular is not very attractive. So Formula One is trying to do work in areas that will make it more acceptable, particularly in the way of synthetic fuels, which is a fascinating way to go. But in other classes of racing, for example, we now have Formula E, where the cars are entirely electric. And that's obviously creating new bits of technology, lessons which may well transfer into the cars that you and I drive every day. One of the ways that motor racing used to justify its existence was that it used to use this line, which I think originally came from horse racing, which said, racing improves the breed. And what they meant by that was that you develop a new type of brake in motor racing. The disc brake began in motor racing. Now, every car on the road has a disc brake. And that was something that was developed in racing because they wanted to be able to have a car that braked better for the racing. And that has transferred to the road cars. It doesn't really happen quite the same now, because if a road car manufacturer wants to develop new technology, it's going to be much cheaper and easier for him to do it in his own laboratories behind closed doors. But nevertheless, motor racing is realising 
that if it can do a better job towards helping the climate, helping today's road cars to be more efficient, then that's going to be good for its image. Following on, Simon, from what you said a bit earlier on, is the day not too far away as the driver's role gets ever more diminished, where actually Formula One will be purely <laughs> skeletrics almost, and there'll be nobody in the cockpit? Well, I'm afraid that that is a danger. Formula One is aware of that danger, and it's trying various slightly clunky artificial ways to improve it. The danger with modern cars is that because they rely so much on aerodynamics and because the, a car that's following another car will be working less efficiently than the cars in, that's in front, they've found artificial ways of making the car behind able to go quicker to overtake. And that's really in the realms of computer games. And in theory, of course, we could have cars rushing around without drivers, because we, as we know, we're expected to have pretty soon autonomous cars on the road. We'll be able to sit going down the motorway, reading a book, because the car will do the job for us. It would certainly be possible, even now, I guess, to have Formula One races with no drivers at all. But actually, the reverse is also kind of worrying because during the worst of the COVID epidemic, pandemic, when races weren't able to take place, races did take place, but they took place virtually. And all the drivers would be sitting in their sitting rooms or their studies or their bathrooms around the world with an incredibly sophisticated, they'd have a driving seat and a steering wheel and a screen, and they would genuinely be racing, but it would all be virtual. And the spectators were able to see on their computers the race going on, and the technology is such that the race was incredibly realistic. Cars made pit stops, cars had accidents, nobody got hurt, but all sorts of things went on which were controlled by the skills of the drivers. But it was all a computer game. And it was so effective and so realistic that that really has me worried because I want to go and watch a motor race where it smells and it sounds loud and you see all the atmosphere and the excitement of an event really happening. If it's just going to happen on a computer screen, then I think the worm really will have turned. Well, Simon, that was honestly, we've said it to so many guests, but we really could have talked for hours. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, the current F1 season obviously gathers pace around us, but we're actually heading onto the water next time to look at what is almost F1 on the ocean waves. Our sports tech top 20 is looming and we'd love to hear your moments. And tell your friends who think they know all there is to know about sport to listen to this podcast because they don't. Oh, we are learning so much with every episode. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Tech Chairs. We hope you found it informative, thought-provoking, entertaining. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay up to date with all things sport tech, be sure to subscribe. You can follow us on Apple, Spotify and all good podcast channels. And if you have any feedback, suggestions or just want to say hello, contact us on Twitter at Sport Tech Group, LinkedIn, 
the STA Group, or by email techchairs at sportstechgroup.org. Don't forget, if you're posting on social, our hashtags are techchairs and sportstechgoat.com.